Welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Each week on Vernacular, we explore the art of being truly and fully human. Most of the time, that means that Sally and I chat for 15 to 20 minutes about a topic, general or specific, and how it helps us understand what it means to be human. But we don't have all the answers, so occasionally we invite guests on the show to help us tackle this question in the context of their job or hobby, current events, or pop culture. Thanks for joining us as we practice the art of being human. Sally and Zach again. We're back just for a final note before we start this episode. This episode is actually a re-release of an episode that we recorded in 2016 to commemorate the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which this year is Monday, January 22nd, 2018, because Roe v. Wade, the decision came down on January 22nd, 1973. 45 years ago, which is amazing. Yeah. And we are we love this episode because it contains a lot of great information that you don't always hear all the time about the legal decision and the Supreme Court. And we wanted to get that information out there again. Yeah. And we'll just lay our cards on the table. We are very pro-life. And by that, I mean, we believe that all human life from conception to natural death deserves legal protection. And that point of view comes through very strongly in this podcast episode through the guests that we interview, the questions that we ask and the points we make. And it's not meant to be a debate show, so we don't talk to people who disagree with us. Uh, We have in the past, and we will again in the future, but that's not what this episode is. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you have them, please feel free to reach out, Zach and Sally at VernacularPodcast.com, or you can find us on Twitter at VernacularPod, and the same uh, handle on Instagram. And in addition to not talking to people with opposing viewpoints, we also don't talk very extensively about the science of that in, that is involved when we're talking about abortion we right. go into it a little bit but not extensively and we do not talk about all the numerous wonderful important ways to support women in the aftermath of roe v wade and um really women in crisis pregnancies throughout history right um we have talked about that a little bit in the past couple months we have yeah um go, but go back and check an episode from from november where we talked to uh Noelle and Skyler and about Noelle's work at a crisis pregnancy center. But that's not what this episode is about. So um, we just wanted to, yeah, be clear about what we do and do not talk about. And we hope that you enjoy the show. And thanks for listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And you are listening to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. I think this is probably most appropriately called an intermission episode because we are situating this right between seasons two and three of Vernacular. And after after this episode, we're actually going to be taking a short break for the month of February before we are back with episode one of season three in March. Yes, that's right. Today, we're doing a special topical examination of the issue of abortion. And we're bringing on guests to talk us through the various facets of this issue. It's very complicated, but we're particularly focusing on the legal development of abortion law and abortion's various social and economic impacts. Right. So as Sally just alluded to, what we're not going to do in this podcast is go into the detailed science behind embryogenesis. And that's because there's really not time to. We want to focus on the legal questions and the societal consequences of abortion and the medical consequences, certainly. So we're going to do that. But before we do, we just want to give a summary of the scientific question surrounding abortion and we'll lay our cards on the table. We believe that human life begins at conception. Now, perhaps understandably, there is this widespread belief out there that in order to have a firm belief in that, that human life begins at conception, that you need to to stake 
a high degree of credibility or authenticity to a book that was written thousands of years ago, a religious text, perhaps the Quran or the Jewish uh, Torah or the uh, Christian Bible. And that may be uh, true for some people that they rely on those books to get an understanding of embryology. But uh, for Sally and I, we're really convinced by the science behind this. And when you dig into it, it turns out that it's not really a controversial point to think that human life begins at conception. So Bill Nye, Bill Nye the science guy, uh, who I grew up with watching uh, on TV, and he's a lot of fun, an engineer by training, he decided to jump into the embryology debate last September, and he released a five-minute YouTube video talking about why human life does not begin at conception. And he was really unconvincing on this and basically uh, attacked the straw man that some people cling to their Bible, essentially, in uh, arguing their embryology. He never, he never addressed the really unanimous scientific consensus that human life begins at conception. So let me just quote here from a, a book, uh, a medical school textbook uh, written by Dr. Keith Moore. It's called The Developing Human, Clinically Oriented Embryology. Dr. Moore says, human life begins at fertilization, the process during which a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete or ovum to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. Yes, the best scientific argument for why human life begins at conception is that it is at that point, the point when the sperm has fertilized the egg, and so now it's a fertilized egg, also called a zygote, also called an embryo, it's at that point that three things are true. One is that the embryo is genetically distinct from its father and mother, and two, the, the embryo is human. It's, it's, there's no other way to describe it. It's not part of any other family or um, plant or animal family. It, it is human. And three, it has everything that it needs given the right environment and given that no violence or harm comes to it. It has everything that it needs inside of it genetically to go through all the rest of the stages of human development. It is in the embryonic stage of development, which is the earliest stage of development, but given the right circumstances, it will then become a fetus and then a child and then an adolescent and then an adult. It's not, it's not anything else but the earliest stage, stage of development of, of every, every human, being, human being experiences. And nothing will be added to it to make it go through those stages. Right. So it has the capacity for self-directed development all on its own at yes. that stage. Yes. As long as nothing hurts it and as long as it has the right nutrition and the right environment. Right, right. Well, in that Bill Nye interview or Bill Bill Nye YouTube clip that I mentioned, uh, Bill Nye mentioned that it's a fallacy to believe that a human life begins at conception because implantation still has to happen. Right, and I, that is just an environmental aspect um, it, or argument. It is what it is, regardless of whether or not it implants. Right. There's so nothing the, new that happens to the embryo internally. Right. When it implants. Right. That's so the just, pregnancy begins at implantation. The human life begins at conception. Right. Right. I mean, it's. I mean, to use maybe a crude analogy, uh, you know, a homeless person is still a human being, even if they're not living in the right house. Right. If they don't have the, if they don't have the environment they need to have the the shelter they need they're still a human being right, right so right. i think similar analogy there so uh, i think bill nye maybe should go back and read up on science books a little bit one other point here the late great uh christopher hitchens uh who some of our listeners may be familiar with he was a very prominent atheist who died several years ago quite sadly uh but he wrote about this issue in his book god is not great 
And let me just read an excerpt from his his book here. Uh, If you have a copy of it, this is on page uh, 220 and 221. Hitchens writes, As a materialist, I think it has been demonstrated that an embryo is a separate body and entity, and not merely a growth on or in the female body. Uh, The words unborn child, even when used in a politicized manner, describe a material reality. Uh, And I just mentioned Christopher Hitchens here to drive the point home that you don't need to uh, be a theist to believe that human life begins at conception. So if you're not already convinced of this, uh, we encourage you to go back and do some digging because we've done a lot of reading up on this and we're pretty darn convinced at this point. So now the question is, like I was saying, at what point does an embryo, does a human being in embryonic form, in in the embryonic stage of development like Sally talked about, at what point does that human being deserve full protection? Uh, that's one question around abortion. And another one I think is what, what is the cost to women? Yes. And that cost is what we're going to be talking about in our episode today, because the second reason why we're opposed to abortion is that it harms women. And that's what we're going to be talking to our guests about in just a few minutes. But before we do that, we want to throw some statistics up there to frame the discussion. And the statistics that we're about to cite come from the Gutmarker Institute, which bills itself as a think tank focusing on reproductive and sexual health issues. And notably, Gutmarker is uh, pro-choice, openly pro-choice. They're very upfront about that. Uh, And so the reason we're using their numbers is is because we don't want to be using numbers that, uh, for example, an anti-abortion group might have reason to inflate, might, might have reason to make sound more atrocious than they actually are. So we want to go to a place like Gutmarker and use their numbers uh, directly. Since we disagree with them on their policy positions anyway, we'll just use their statistics for the sake of the argument. Uh, the second uh, caveat I want to give to these numbers is that they're really only estimates because there's no accurate way to account for all abortions done in America. And that's because some of our guests will uh, talk about later today, there is no effective regulation nationwide on abortion practices. Okay, so here are two of those statistics from Gutmacher. First, the average cost of an abortion in the United States is $483. And secondly, from 1973, the year that Roe v. Wade helped to legalize abortion on demand, until 2011, nearly 53 million legal abortions occurred. So to put that massive number in perspective for you, if you were to add up the populations of San Jose, California, Dallas, San Diego, San Antonio... Phoenix, Philadelphia, Houston, Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York City. Those are the 10 largest cities in America. Okay. And then double that number. Wow. You still wouldn't quite reach 53 million. That's absolutely staggering to me. It really is. And so here's another statistic from Gutmacher. Four in 10 unintended pregnancies end in abortion. That's 40% of unintended pregnancies. And that's concerning, especially since the data from Gutmacher also tells us that at least 50% of American women, half of American women, will have an unintended pregnancy by age 45. And they further tell us that one in 10 women will have an abortion by age 20. I also think it's worth pointing out that China was actually one of the first large nations to enact liberal abortion laws, and they did that in 1957, 16 years before the United States. But in general, I think that when you're looking to China for your cues on human rights, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah, so I mean, think about this for a minute. Like Sally said, China, one of the first countries in the world to enact liberal abortion laws. And this was in 1957, which was at the height of the first five-year plan, which was in the Mao era. And one of the problems that China was dealing with was that their agricultural output did not match their industrial productivity. So how did they do that? They cut population. 
So this was an advance of the Cultural Revolution, which started about a decade later, in which, of course, millions of people experienced internal displacement or forced starvation, forced marches, torture, arbitrary imprisonment, etc. Really, really bad stuff. This is the type of regime that uh, legalized abortion and encouraged it in 1956. So anyway, with that, let's cover a brief history of abortion jurisprudence in the U.S., starting with Griswold v. Connecticut. So Griswold v. Connecticut was a a Supreme Court case in 1965, and in that case, the Supreme Court basically said that there's a right of privacy in the Constitution and a right of marital privacy, Um, and and they got that from the Bill of Rights, which it says has specific guarantees, but then in addition to the things that it specifically outlined, it, it also has these penumbras and emanations that create what they called zones of privacy. And one of the zones of privacy included the right of a married couple to use contraception. Right. So the issue was about contraception. Right. In it wasn't about abortion yet. Yeah. There was, I think, a state law in Connecticut that outlawed the use of contraception. Right. So and it's... Griswold was challenging this. Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court, in its decision, uh, sided with Griswold and said the was, state cannot outlaw this. Right. Because of this uh, right to marital privacy. Right to marital privacy. That's yeah. the language there. But in elaborating what constituted the right to marital privacy, uh, Justice Douglas, who wrote the majority opinion, uh, basically left it pretty open-ended as to what exactly a right uh, of privacy meant right. or included. Right. So he left that open to interpretation and was perhaps intentionally ambiguous on that, which laid the groundwork for Eisenstadt v. Baird in, in 1972. Yeah. So the year before Roe, the court looks at contraception again, and they extend that right of privacy past married people to include unmarried people as well. And that happened right before right before Roe came before the court. Right. So where Griswold was about the right to marital privacy, Eisenstadt v. Baird and Justice Brennan's opinion specifically expands that right to marital privacy. Generalized right to privacy. Generalized right to privacy. Because the logic is basically because because the right to marital privacy is really just a right uh, that comes from the association of two individuals. It's really those two individuals' rights as well. So he expands it to the individual. And he says, quote, in his his, uh, opinion, if the right of privacy means anything, it is the right of the individual, married or single, again, uh, not distinguishing between the right to marital privacy and the right to individual privacy, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. And I think that last line is pretty key because Griswold v. Connecticut was about contraception, and that was really about the decision whether to beget a child, right, the decision to conceive a child. Mm-hmm. Justice Brennan, is, in his opinion, in Eisenstadt, intentionally expands this and says, no, 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 this is about the decision whether to not just beget the child, but also to bear the child, whether or not to carry the child. Uh, and it's interesting to know this little tidbit that Justice Brennan was writing this opinion in Eisenstadt at the time that he already knew the court was considering Roe. So he was writing his dicta in this case, knowing that it could be used in Roe to help expand uh, that right further. So then Roe comes before the court, and having laid the groundwork in Eisenstadt and Griswold, we they expand the right to privacy to include abortion. And 
Along with Roe, the court considered a case called Dovey Bolton, and the court specifically said that those two cases should be read together. So there, the the conclusions of both of those cases together encompass the court's decision on abortion. And Roe authorized abortion for the life or health of the mother, and Doe defined that, defined the mother's health without limit. It said that the mother's health includes a variety of factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, age-related, basically anything relevant to the well-being of the woman. All of those factors can be health. And Right. So the Doe case was about a Georgia law. And the Georgia law prohibited abortion except for three separate cases. One was in the case of grave, permanent, and irremediable mental or physical defect in the fetus. Two was the rape exception, forcible or statutory rape. And three was serious and permanent injury to the mother's health. But as Sally was just describing, the decision in Doe expanded that definition of mother's health to include physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and age factors. So vastly expanding the definition of maternal health for the purposes of determining whether or not an abortion is permissible. So that was 1973, and then fast forward to 1992, the next abortion case that came before the Supreme Court, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And in this case, the court reaffirmed the what they called the essential holding of Roe and Doe, but it reworked all the reasoning and rationale of, of those cases. And um, it reworked it in, a, in several ways, and it's complicated, but... I think the two biggest points to remember are that it threw out the trimester framework that Roe and Doe had relied upon to help decide when an abortion restriction is legal or illegal, and it brought in the concept of viability, um, basically saying that the Roe, Roe sh- applying a viability to Roe, the central principle becomes that Roe is about a right to terminate a pregnancy before viability. After viability, an abortion is illegal and unconstitutional. And then the second thing that that the court did to revamp the reasoning in Roe is that it threw out strict scrutiny as the standard and brought in what it called the undue burden standard. And one of our guests will talk about that in more detail. But basically, the court said that that regulations cannot become an undue burden on a woman's right to to privacy, to liberty. Her basically, her rights cannot be burdened by by state regulations on abortion, and that is the standard by which we can judge whether or not a regulation is unconstitutional. So, I just want to back up for a few moments and talk about this viability standard because this has never sat well with me. I've never understood the viability argument. Yeah. Because this decision was decided in 1992, and in 1992, what constituted an age of viability for a fetus was certainly later than it is now because of improving medical technology. So the court was basically staking its claim on a certain point, viability, that's a moving target and is a moving target and is continually sliding more to the left towards conception the further advanced our medical technologies are. Yeah. And so... The court was comfortable for some reason basically declaring that that there was a right to abortion up to the viability point, even though that viability point is nothing fixed. So, I mean, I also disagree with the trimester rationale, but the trimester rationale at least is more rational to me because there's a fixed point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway. Yeah. So I think with that summary of our abortion cases, I think we'll bring on our next guest or our first guest, uh, we're going to talk to Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel at Americans United for Life and author of the 2013 book, Abuse of Discretion, 
the inside story of Roe versus Wade. Clark, thank you so much for joining us. I have to ask here, first, is our accurate or is our description of the uh, litigative history of abortion accurate? Did we accurately summarize Roe v. Wade specifically? Is this the point at which abortion became legalized nationwide? Yes, in effect, because the justices in Roe struck down every abortion law across the country. Now, abortion had been legal in some states between 1967 and 1973 by legislation. But the court uh, in Roe v. Wade struck down all the old laws that prohibited abortion except save the life of the mother. And in the companion case of Doe v. Bolton, struck down all the other laws. So in Roe and Doe together, the court struck down all the laws across the country and legalized abortion from coast to coast. So how did we get to Roe v. Wade? What cases laid the groundwork for the justices' 1973 decision? Well, the big case was Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, which uh, struck down a state prohibition on the marital use of contraception. But it was a strange case because Connecticut's was the only such law in the country. Uh, and the court narrowly based its decision in 65 and Griswold on a marital right of privacy. Um, so there was a leap from, so how did they get from contraception in 65 to abortion in 73? Um, no one has ever really, I mean, few people have, have ever expressed any confidence in how the justices did that. They, they, basically said there's a, this general right of privacy that we've recognized or created and abortion falls within it. And that was basically it. How did the legal reasoning that you just described in Roe develop in subsequent cases? Well, Roe is still the basic landmark decision. But the curious thing is that the guts of Roe versus Wade, the rationale, the reasoning has basically been pulled out of the court's abortion doctrine. But subsequent to Roe, the court has gone through 30 cases or so in which they've reviewed various limits, limits on abortion, public, uh, publicly funded abortion, uh, informed consent regulations, parental notice and consent, um, health and safety regulations in the second trimester, partial birth abortion, um, and, uh, and, and Casey in 1992 was the, the, the second or third retreat from Roe, stepping back, allowing de more deference to the states. And, and Casey in 92 is really important because the court f said, we're going to allow more deference to the states. We're going to allow the states to protect fetal life, as they called it, and maternal health more. And the 23 years since Casey have been kind of applying Casey and deciding what Casey means, because Casey said, we're going to allow the states to limit and regulate unless they create an undue burden. And the question for the past 23 years is, what, what does an undue burden mean? And what does the court found in subsequent cases? I mean, what does constitute an undue burden? It's a substantial obstacle. And, and that's about 
all the court has said. Uh, I mean, one of the strange things about the court's abortion doctrine is that it has really rarely revisited the question. I, I mean, since 92 in Casey, the court has only addressed three abortion cases. And the fourth one is, is coming up in the spring from Texas called Whole Women's Health versus Cole. So it's, it's, uh, it's not as if the court addresses the abortion issue every month or every year. It, uh, the last case was in 2007. So by the time the court decides its next abortion case, it'll been virtually nine years. So Clark has walked us through some of the problems with the legal history of Roe and the problematic ways in which the Supreme Court has defined certain terms as they relate to abortion and abortion jurisprudence. But we need to talk about another part of abortion that is very, very important. Yes, we still need to discuss the consequences of Roe for women. And we are going to bring on two women to do that for us. First, Paige Comstock-Cunningham, Executive Director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Here's Paige discussing the consequences of Roe for women. Well, it had many, many consequences, um, not least of which is completely upending our traditional understanding of the role of the Supreme Court and jurisprudence. Roe set a trajectory for a view of women in American society that basically is defined by what may be called, quote, our reproductive capacity, but ultimately it boils down to our ability to abort our children. And, and it has positioned women as depending upon this ability, this so-called freedom, more than any other thing that defines us, as that is uh, what the court has said is essential for our social, economic, and political equality. And so it has, it has created a, a very cardboard or caricature view of women as somehow um, unable to express that which is most unique about us, which in fact is our ability to bear children. It has done that through, for many years, rejecting any kind of regulation that might have the effect of, of impinging on abortion or reducing the numbers of abortion. So it seemed to be a very abortion-driven kind of legal agenda and certainly an abortion-driven political agenda. You know, in the first decades, that really was a just a very toxic issue for the Supreme Court as they were setting out this whole framework of abortion jurisprudence. We're seeing some retrenchment from that, but but cu culturally and socially, that assumption is still there, that abortion always has to be available as some kind of a backstop for either failed birth control or simply failure to use birth control. Now, Paige, this point about reproductive capacity, as you said, is this what you were talking about in your article from several years ago called The Supreme Court and the Creation of the Two-Dimensional Woman? Yes, because it's it's really seen... Uh, women as, first of all, to be defined by just one capacity, which is our ability to conceive and bear children, rather than seeing women as full, what I would describe as three-dimensional creatures who are not just physical beings, we are emotional, spiritual beings, and we do not have to deny part of who we are, part of our essence, to be not only whole as women, but also whole as members of the society in which we live. But the Supreme Court just consistently viewed women through this lens of avoiding pregnancy or having the freedom to terminate a pregnancy, um, ultimately at the woman's own choice. She doesn't have to have significant reasons for it. She can simply 
decide that this is not a good time in her life, which oftentimes is the reason given, and that extends throughout pregnancy. Now, there have been some regulations more recently that have paid more attention to the reality that abortion hurts women and also the reality that abortions are done on children who are within inches of being born alive. So we've, we've seen some, some positive changes, but ultimately it is still all about reproduction, reproductive freedom, reproductive choice, however they label it, as to be the most essential defining characteristic of who we are as women. And frankly, I find that kind of insulting. You mentioned that abortion harms women, and it's fairly obvious how late-term abortions can hurt women both emotionally and physically. But can you explain how early-term abortions also hurt women? Well, first of all, she has um, chosen to interrupt a natural process through either chemical or surgical means. And so that in itself is something the body's not designed to do. The body's designed to, to... complete the pregnancy and give birth to a child. Secondly, there may be um, immediate risks, and there's a a fairly significant uh, number of immediate risks, such as um, excessive bleeding, you may have pain, there may be infection, it may be a low-grade infection that's not detected for a long time, which which in some cases can render her infertile. There can be longer-term risks to her health, but there are also the risks to her emotional and psychological well-being. Initially, she may feel relief. Thank goodness that's over. That problem is solved. And she may not deal with the consequences of what she has done until some future life event that she cannot predict. It might be when she um, gets pregnant and decides she does want to have a child and gives birth to that child, and then she may all of a sudden realize that she has already she already is a mother, but she aborted her first child, or it may be when she tries to get pregnant and discovers she cannot. So you, she never can know what life event might trigger those feelings of deep um, grief and remorse over what she has done, and you know there's no band aid that can heal a broken heart. Page's point about the Supreme Court's two-dimensional view of women is actually evident when you read some of the court's opinions in their abortion cases. Yeah, take, for example, the 1992 decision that we've already talked about, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, when the majority opinion uh, included this verbiage, that for two decades of economic and social developments, people have organized intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. For more on this idea and the consequences of Roe, we talked to Anna Franzanella Propaki, a Chicago-based lawyer with American United for Life. You know, if you listen to Planned Parenthood or the abortion industry, they would make it sound as if these have all been beneficial for women that Abortion on demand has been something that has opened doors for women economically, socially, um, but it's actually the exact opposite is the truth, that the culture, the, this, the legal ramifications um, when we have abortion on demand um, actually uh, disincentivize society from creating a truly just and equal society for women. Um, so a, a society that sees abortion on demand as you know, it's now seen as a solution for the poor. It's seen as, um, you know, the 
the barrier that, that a pregnancy becomes a barrier to your educational and um, uh, other successes. And, you know, abortion is there as the outlet um, to get rid of that. So we've now we've now really devalued motherhood. Um, but there's also other physical and emotional harms that have faced women who have um, have had abortions. So there's the, you know, the the actual impact on individual women who have had abortions, but then a larger societal impact that's, that has been devastating for women um, and and has taken us in a direction where we we are never actually going to be valued fully for who we are. Now, Anna, you mentioned uh, emotional and physical impact on women. Can you talk briefly about what you mean by both of those? Sure. So, um, you know, whether an abortion is carried out by uh, an invasive surgery or by a potent drug, because there's obviously different ways to um, induce an abortion. So some are surgical, some are chemical. Uh, Both of those carry inherent physical risks to women. So short-term and long-term risks. So, you know, with a a surgical abortion, obviously there's risks of laceration of the uterus. um, And, you know, with a chemical abortion, there are also risks of hemorrhage. Um, So there's short-term physical risks that are posed to a woman from, you know, an invasive surgery or a potent drug. But then there are also long-term physical risks, um, risks to future fertility, especially, you know, when we talk about a surgery that has risks of things like a, a laceration to the uterus or, um, you know, that there are, are risks to a woman's future fertility too. But then there are numerous uh, peer-reviewed, well-documented studies uh, that show the emotional, um, the, the psychological harm to women. So increased risks of suicide ideation um, and depression following abortion. So these are, 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 you know, there's numerous studies out there, peer-reviewed studies showing both the physical, short-term and long-term physical risks, and, as well as emotional harms to women. Have these consequences disproportionately affected minority women? They have, and partly because, you know, the, the impact on um, women below the poverty level, uh, poor women, um, there there's a larger impact there uh, because, you know, pregnancy is seen as um, a barrier to her success, uh, even more so than a woman, um, you know, who might have have greater means. So we see that, you know, when you look at the actual numbers of women having abortions, um, you know, about 30% of women having abortions are black, and that's a much higher percentage than, um, you know, in the general population. Um, you know, Hispanic women account for, um, according to the uh, most recent. Uh, reports from the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-abortion research arm, but, um, you know, one of the uh, research organizations that's putting out more numbers, but Hispanic women account for 25% of the abortion. So non-Hispanic white women um, only account for 36 of the abortion in this country. So it's it's definitely a a greater impact on uh, minority women. Um, One of the really sad statistics is that there are more black babies aborted than born in New York City. Uh, So that's a real tragedy um, in how it's impacted the black community. The consequences of Roe versus Wade for women in America that Paige and Anna have talked about are due in large part to the flawed assumptions underlying the justices' reasoning in their abortion jurisprudence. Here is Clark Forsyth again to discuss what he calls the medical myth that underlies the justices' legal reasoning. Well, first of all, the court, uh, the the, the decision-making in Roe versus Wade was aberrant it uh, the court there were there was no trial in Roe versus Wade, no trial in Doe versus Bolton, no evidentiary record created through the adversary process, 
And then the case is, for legal reasons, uh, unique legal reasons I won't get into, went straight from the federal trial, federal court in Georgia and the federal court in Texas, straight up to the Supreme Court. And, and for the first time, the justices get some briefs, papers by interest groups that claim that abortion is safer than childbirth. And they base that on data or numbers from Soviet bloc countries in the 1950s. I mean, Romania, Czechoslovakia in the 1950s. And uh, this data was unreliable, but the justices uh, adopted it and uh, adopted the, the, the notion that abortion is safer than childbirth that is based on the comparison of abortion mortality rates and childbirth mortality rates, but no reliable data to, to demonstrate either. And yet they adopted this notion, which I call a myth because there was no reliable data, and they built the entire superstructure of Roe on this notion. Uh, because of this notion, they deferred to self-regulation by providers. Because of this notion, they prohibited states from enacting health and safety regulations in the first trimester when 90% are performed. Because of this notion, they expanded the right to viability and fetal viability and beyond. It, it was the, it's the most important medical or sociological fact in all of Roe versus Wade. Why didn't the court know about the long-term risks of abortion to women? Well, we don't, we don't have a, a reliable uh, system of abortion data collection and reporting in the United States, but there is a growing body of international medical data. I mean, peer-reviewed international medical studies from Asian countries, Scandinavian countries, European countries, Africa, South America, that uh, have found an increased risk of preterm birth after abortion, meaning uh, preemies uh, in future pregnancies, uh, an increased risk of mental trauma after abortion, and an increased risk of breast cancer after abortion. Now, an increased risk doesn't mean causation, uh, doesn't necessarily mean causation. But an increased risk and other factors could lead uh, medical experts to conclude causation. Um, but these studies, uh, I mean, there are 100 studies, uh, international studies, studies showing uh, increased risk of preterm birth, um, uh, nearly 100 studies showing uh, uh, increased risk of mental trauma, 35 or so studies showing increased risk of breast cancer, including a huge study from China about a year or two ago. And, uh, and, and this body of data didn't exist in 1973, and it really, it, it really didn't exist even in 1992 at the time of Casey. And uh, so this is important data that doctors need to know about, and certainly women should be informed about. But um, we really don't know the, the, the uh, rate of, of these complications because we don't have a, a reliable uh, abortion data collection and reporting system in the United States. I mean, take uh, take the figure that's often reported by the media, uh, the annual number of abortions. Uh, it was at, in 1992, it was probably reported at 1.6 million abortions a year. Most recently, it's down to about 
900,000 or a million abortions a year. Uh, we think we know that, but that's based on estimates. I mean, uh, when, you, when you consider that California, which at one time reported a third or a fourth of all the abortions in the United States, something like 300,000 or more abortions, California hasn't even reported its numbers in several years. So how can we be confident in even the bare number of annual abortions? And if you don't know that, then you can't calculate the or have any reliable uh, confidence in the rate of complications, let alone the numbers. This lack of available data surrounding the number of abortions and abortion complications is something that Anna talked to us about as well, since public health officials and women don't have the information they need to make good, informed decisions. One of, one of the things that... Uh, we need to have uh, better laws on our reporting of abortion complications because there, there is, uh, there's not good means for reporting abortion complications. Uh, many states don't require it. There's no federal collection. We're relying on the abortion industry to self-report. And obviously it's in its best interest not to report the complications that women are experiencing. And, and many women too don't want to come forward um, because there is a stigma attached to having an abortion and they don't necessarily want to come forward and say I had an abortion. These are the complications. But then there's also the I mean, there, there's a whole, um, there, there are several layers to it too, where, you know, we know from some whistleblower lawsuits, uh, one whistleblower lawsuit out of Iowa, former employee of Planned Parenthood, who says that they told women who were experiencing complications after a chemical abortion that Planned Parenthood sold them to just go to the emergency room and say, say that they were experiencing a spontaneous miscarriage. So we know that there is a huge cover up of, um, you know, the complications, um, from abortion, that there is a, a big silence from women who don't want to necessarily speak about the complications that they've experienced from their abortion, um, and you know we we need better we need better reporting. We probably need better laws uh, requiring abortion reporting and complications. So taking a step back, this whole discussion about abortion records and available data is really a discussion that stems from the argument that there are medical risks to abortion. What about the argument that abortion is safer than childbirth? What does the data show us there? All right, so childbirth does carry risks. So obviously, you know, that, that's a true statement that there are risks um, in pregnancy and childbirth. But data shows, and that, that's actually an assumption that the, you know, the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade initially thought, well, and they, they just assumed without evidence that um, abortion was safer than childbirth. So that was one of the arguments kind of for you know, this mass legalization of abortion that somehow childbirth was more dangerous. But, um, you know, studies actually show that in countries that have very restricted um, abortion laws, so Ireland and Poland, they actually have very, they, they have better maternal mortality rates than the United States and other countries with liberalized abortion laws. Um, and then there's actually a recent study out of Chile, which uh, shows that when um, the country, uh, you know, had a, you know, they had a more permissive abortion law, and and when they enacted a more restrictive abortion policy, um, their their maternal mortality rates improved as well. There's another harmful aspect of abortion, in addition to its medical risks to women, that we have yet to discuss: sex selective abortion, which is basically when the parent or both parents choose to abort their child based solely on his or her sex. Here's Paige again, answering the question, how widespread is sex-selective abortion globally? It's really hard to get at exact numbers because so much of it is done underground. But 
but when you compile different studies from different countries, it could be anywhere from 100 to 400 or 500 million missing girls and women because of sex-selective abortion. It tends to be concentrated in countries where there's a preference for sons, and it is happening in the United States as well. I mean, if you look at the list of countries that are recognized by the, um, the UNFPA, which is the United Nations Fund for Population Activities, they list China, India, Vietnam, Pakistan, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, Albania, Montenegro. Um, and then another study adds Bangladesh, Nepal, and Singapore. And the UNFPA also recognizes the Asian diaspora, both in Europe and in North America. So these, these would be um, immigrants from countries where they have a preference for sons who have now migrated to Canada, the United States, or Europe, and continue that same practice of choosing sons over daughters. So they may either abort a baby girl, or if they are going through IVF, IVF in vitro fertilization, they may choose to have um, testing done and refuse to implant an embryo that is for a girl. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty widespread problem. And because it's been going on for a couple of decades now, we're having to deal with the demographic reality that there are millions and millions of men who cannot find wives to marry because they, they were aborted. They simply don't exist. Now, Paige, it seems to me that some of these places you've mentioned in which sex-selective abortion is most prevalent, places like China and India and Pakistan, these are places that have been criticized frequently for being patriarchal systems in which it is very difficult for women to achieve upward social mobility. Do you think that sex-selective abortion in this way enables patriarchy? You know, it absolutely does. It's interesting because this practice actually began with the elite because they could afford the technology as the cost of ultrasound became cheaper, the middle class adopted it. And now even the poorest family in India can scrape together enough money to pay for an ultrasound because still because of cultural practices, it's very burdensome to have a daughter because of the dowry obligations which often don't end when she's married and, the, and the, the wife's family continues to ask for more and more and more things from uh, the bride's family. Excuse me, the, the groom's family will ask for this from the bride's family. So it's, it has become just a practice throughout culture. It's not just you know, reserved to the people who have boutique medical care, but anyone who is afraid of having a daughter, particularly if they already have one daughter, will try very desperately to avoid the birth of a second child. And if there is a family who is who already has two daughters, the sex imbalance at the birth of a third child is just astronomically out of proportion. Uh, the ratio of boys over girls that are being born to um, families with a third child. You mentioned that sex-selective abortion is happening in the U.S. Is it legal in the U.S.? Well, it is... It is in that it's not illegal in most states. A number of states have passed laws uh, prohibiting sex-selective abortion. I think the first one was Pennsylvania, uh, which was passed in the law that was challenged in Planned, Planned Parenthood versus Casey that the Supreme Court decided back in 1992. But that part of it was never raised to the Supreme Court, I think, because Planned Parenthood really didn't want to get a ruling that sex-selective abortion bans are permissible. Um, but states such as North Dakota, Virginia, 
Arizona, Illinois, Oklahoma, and as I mentioned, Pennsylvania have passed bans on sex selective abortion. And it's been tried in about a half a dozen other states, you know, including New Jersey, New York, and Minnesota. So it, it has been um, recognized as a problem. What's interesting, though, is the, I think, almost the desperation <laughs> or certainly the determination of supporters of abortion to deny that it's a problem in the United States. And there are, um, there are studies that show certainly within these um, subpopulations, these immigrant communities that we still see that real um, imbalance of the, the sex ratio at birth, where there are many more boys than girls being born, particularly, as I said before, for third pregnancies. So yeah, it's going on in the U S and it's been stopped or at least legally prohibited in some states, but that doesn't stop the practice of it. So if I'm hearing you correctly, in a majority of states in America, there is no prohibition on a woman having an abortion for no other reason than the sex of her baby. Well, yeah, she doesn't really have to give a reason. Um, and in, in a lot of these countries that I mentioned, sex-selective abortion is illegal. So it's not just enough to have a law if you don't change the cultural practice as well. Um, but since she doesn't have to give a reason for abortion, she doesn't have to admit that it's because she wanted a son, because usually it's the girls who are, who are aborted or terminated. Um, in some cases, a, a daughter may be chosen for what's called family balancing. Maybe they have a boy, they, a son, and now they want to make sure they have a daughter. But most often, um, it's the girls who are aborted. And it's ironic that women who fought so hard for rights for women and who felt that abortion was an essential right of women are now stuck in the position of saying, well, for the sake of abortion, for women who exist, we are going to permit abortion of future women who will never have a chance to grow up. And I think that's really a very difficult position for them to defend, but nonetheless, they are put in the corner that they must and sex selective abortion really seems to open up a Pandora's box because once the possibility for it is there and there's an unwillingness on the part of legislators to enact any sort of prohibitions against it, what comes next logically? Prenatal or pre-implantation sex screening? Right. I mean, if she's going through an infertility treatment, for example, um, the, the guidelines for, I believe it's the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, um, they don't prohibit it, but they, I think their ethics committee is deeply concerned about um, following or, or, or obtaining tests that reveal the sex of the embryo before implanting the embryo. They're not completely opposed, I think, because of some serious genetic diseases that are sex-linked. You know, like, say, hemophilia, you know, your daughter's not going to get it. She can just be a carrier. So there may be official policies that frown on it, but they're not willing to say it should just never be done. And, you know, if we're not willing to say that, just stand up and say, this is wrong. This is discrimination against women, and it causes all sorts of problems that we're just beginning to grapple with, then it's going to go, it's going to be practiced because she can get it. And she'll find a doctor who is willing to help her. You touched on this earlier, but what are some of the social consequences of sex-selective abortion? I mentioned the wife shortage earlier. Um, what also is happening is that in rural areas, and I'm thinking particularly of China, the, the families with daughters, those daughters can marry up to wealthier families because they're now their marketable commodity. Poor sons cannot find 
women to marry. So they will migrate to urban areas in part for hopes of finding a wife. So you're, you're finding that rural areas are increasingly being deserted. Um, Cross-cultural marriages, which in some cultures are very frowned upon, say mar a marriage between um, a Korean and a Chinese person, that's increasing. Bride kidnapping is increasing. Um, sex trafficking, as well as prostitution or what some people call voluntary sex work, is increasing because you have a lot of men with unfulfilled sexual needs. Pornography is another way to fulfill those needs. Then there's also kind of a widening social gap because think of it, if a family has one son, they have the son they want, they're satisfied. They have someone to carry on the family name, someone who can inherit the property, someone who will care for them in their old age because sons are obligated to care for parents. But if a family has a daughter, then they're going to try again for a son and may have a second daughter and they may try again and end up with three daughters. So you have one family with one son, all the resources given to that one son. Other families who have multiple daughters are having fewer resources per daughter. And so you're increasing the gap, the socioeconomic gap between families with sons and families with daughters. And then you have this sort of social unrest caused by uh, what the Chinese call bare branches. It's really kind of a disgrace for a man not to be married and have children. So there, there's just a lot of um, unpredictable consequences, which in the, in the cumulatively make a huge cultural difference. Each individual family can say, well, you know, we're just one family. It's not going to make that big of a difference if we only have a son and we abort a daughter who might have been someone's wife. But you add up not just hundreds and thousands, but millions of choices, and you create a colossal problem that cannot be resolved in a short period of time, probably not within an, a generation or so. And those are the unintended but tragic consequences that we should have foreseen when we started meddling with how we welcome or not welcome or don't welcome our children. Once we start saying some children are not welcome and that we have the freedom to decide that they're not welcome, then a lot of unhappy things can result. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Paige. We really appreciate your time and we appreciate the work that you are doing. Up till now, we've covered the legal history of abortion, abortions, medical risks to women and social consequences and the phenomenon of sex-selective abortion. In our next and final segment, we talk to Clark and Anna to get a sense of the current controversy surrounding abortion. We talk with them about American public opinion, current efforts in the states to limit abortion, and an organization at the heart of a recent controversy, Planned Parenthood. Clark, based on what I've read, it seems like this is an issue that bitterly divides us, and this is one of the most polarizing issues in American politics today. Is that what you've seen based on the public opinion data that you've reviewed? No, I don't think it's it's uh, accurate at all. I mean, take the take the the metaphor of polarization, which suggests that you know half the country is on one side of the spectrum and half the country is on the other side of the spectrum. That's not true at all. Uh, I mean, in in abuse of discretion, I laid out. Uh, year by year, the Gallup data from 1975 to 2011, year by year. And Gallup since 75 has asked whether Americans support abortion under any circumstances, under certain circumstances, or under no circumstances, uh, that it you know basically should all be illegal. And um, 
there's really a consistent year-by-year majority of Americans, I mean 50 to 56 percent or 57 percent, that support abortion only under certain circumstances. And if you add that 50 to 55, 56 percent to the range of 10 to 20 percent who think it should be legal under all circumstances, you get, um, you know, between uh, 70 and perhaps 80, 75 percent, 70, 75 percent who support it only under certain circumstances or don't support it at all under any circumstances. Um, but even if you take the, the, the majority that support it under certain circumstances, that that would be a, a majority of Americans who s- could support, you know, various limits, substantial limits, especially in the second or third trimester. I mean, majority opinion shows that most Americans, meaning a majority, 60 to 70 percent, don't support abortion in the second or third trimester, don't support it after the first trimester. Um, and then the and then the uh, the view that uh, a majority might think that it's uh, good for women or a fundamental necessary right, um, that um, that is inaccurate because uh, most Americans don't support it after the first trimester, and uh, most Americans would like to see it performed within the first trimester and only for hard cases. So um, uh, I, I think both of those. Uh, seeming truisms uh, just aren't supported by majoritarian opinion. We know that Roe is the law of the land, but what is the status of current efforts to limit abortion at the state level? Well, the the states since 2011, uh, a majority of the states have passed an increasing number of limits and regulations in the five legislative sessions since 2011 annually. And it, uh, there have been a dramatic increase. Uh, when you look at media sources, you look at the, the abortion rights organization, Gut, the Allen Guttmacher Institute or the Guttmacher Institute, they have regularly reported that, the, has been a, that there has been a significant increase in legislative, uh, legislative limits since 2011. And, um, and that uh, probably has has worked to reduce the numbers, uh, the number of providers and the number of abortions. And um, we're, we're probably below a million, perhaps even below 900 or 950,000 abortions a year, according to the CDC. And, um, and that has, um, and yet I, I think that majority public opinion supports most of those incremental limits. Well, Clark, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your insight and for your tireless work fighting for both women and for those who are too young to protect themselves. Thank you very much. It's been great to be with you. Anna, you mentioned several times today all the ways in which abortion impacts women negatively. If that's the case, why haven't we heard more stories from women about how they've been harmed by abortion? Yeah, well, I think they're there are several facets of that answer. One, I think we do hear from many women um, that abortion is not the answer. We, there are groups, you know, silent no more of you know many women coming out and sharing their abortion stories and how those harmed them. So there are women who are 
coming forward, but not every woman, whether she, um, you know, regrets her abortion or not wants to come forward and talk about her abortion either. Um, and not every woman needs to share her, her negative abortion story publicly. I'm not, don't want to, make it sound that way. There are many women that are coming forward. It is helpful when women share their negative experiences of abortion to really um, undercut that myth that the abortion industry is is on the side of women. Uh, but then there's you know another layer as well uh, where the abortion industry has really sold to women uh, that their achievements, that their successes have come because of their abortion. So for example, Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider, uh, in its most recent annual report, relayed the story of a woman that they identified as Amanda H. Um, and Amanda says in her story about the abortion that they sold her that she can't even imagine uh, what her life would have been like if she hadn't terminated that pregnancy. But then she goes on in her story to do exactly that and to imagine the worst case scenario. She says she wouldn't have finished school, that she would have stayed in the abusive relationship that she was in. She would have drank too much alcohol and she would have had zero self-respect. Um, so the abortion industry has, it, it makes a profit when women like Amanda can't see anything other than the worst case scenario. They've sold her this, I can't, I couldn't have, um, mindset, you know, a really negative mindset, but that for many women who have had abortions, they, that's how their abortion was sold to them, that they can't, they couldn't have. And they, they go on believing that, um, you know, that their, their achievements, which is a really sad, you know, when we talk about the, the impact of, um, you know, what the court has done with abortion, that we do, we have uh, many women in our society who think that their achievements and their successes weren't the result of, of their talents or their strength, but these were the results of, the destruction of their children. And that's a really sad thing. Now you've referred to what you've called the abortion industry several times. And I'm not really sure what you mean by that. I mean, take Planned Parenthood, for example, Planned Parenthood is a nonprofit organization. And I know a lot of anti-abortion activists try to paint their president, Cecile Richards, as some sort of merchant of death. And I certainly don't want to believe that, and and I don't believe that. I think that Cecile Richards is tr is trying to do what is best for women. Right. Now, obviously, we disagree on what that is, but are you suggesting when you say abortion industry that Planned Parenthood in some way profits from carrying out abortions? Sure. So um, Planned Parenthood is not going to want to technically call it a profit, as you mentioned. They're a nonprofit, but they, um, you know, you look at their annual report, and they have every year, you know, double, sometimes triple digit, million dollars, excess revenue over expenses. Um, so an, an ordinary person would consider something like that profit. So you're bringing in revenue that exceeds your expenses. Um, and we know even from the, the recent congressional hearings when Cecile Richards was called to testify um, uh, before a House committee that was investigating her organization's use of taxpayer money, that abortion is, is disproportionately higher uh, revenue generating for Planned Parenthood. So the other services that it, it provides don't bring in revenue to the degree that an abortion does. So they are, you know, they're, they're selling abortions, they're taking money for, for an abortion. So it's, it's an, ex there's an exchange of money when they perform an abortion that pays for salaries, um, pays for overhead. So that it's, that it is something that they're taking in money for. And Planned Parenthood as an organization um, every year is exceeding its, its revenue exceeds its expenses by millions of dollars. And we know 
from people who have you know previously work at, worked at Planned Parenthood, uh, left the industry, and and even from you know Cecile Richards' testimony before Congress that abortion is is a highly uh, it, it's a disproportionately high revenue producer for Planned Parenthood. So back to my Cecile Richards comment that I made earlier, I do believe that Cecile Richards wants what is best for women. Her vision of that, however, is starkly different from many others, including my own, including Sally's. And her vision basically boils down to, as far as I can tell, this one belief that an unintended pregnancy or an unwanted pregnancy is career limiting or life limiting for women. And I I don't think that's the case, but I'm wondering who is pushing the alternative narrative here. If that's the narrative that Planned Parenthood and other pro-choice lobbies are pushing, who is arguing that children are actually a gift and a blessing and something that is wonderful and something to celebrate rather than something to look at as a crutch? Sure. And, um, you know, with Cecile Richards, I don't I don't know her sincerity. Um, I'm, I'm not her and I'm not here to to judge that, but you know, if whether Cecile Richards herself has bought the myth, um, it, it is a myth. It's a myth that women uh, can't achieve success without abortion. It's a myth that we were somehow created inferior, and we need to, you know, medicate or surgically alter ourselves so that we can be equal with men. Um, you know, we're not the same as men. We're created different. We are there. We are different than men. So that that is a, a biological reality. Um, but what her organization and those that advocate for abortion as some sort sort of equality for women, what they really do uh, is they demean that and they, they say we have to become, you know, somehow become like men um, rather than be respected for how we're different um, to fulfill our equality. Um, so I don't want to you know, necessarily doubt her sincerity, but she's wrong on the myth. And I think there are many people, and it is very encouraging, I think, working in the pro-life movement to see all the people that um, speak to the truth. So there, and one of the great uh, outreaches in the pro-life community are the pregnancy resource centers. A number of people might call them crisis pregnancy centers. Um, but there are thousands of people who volunteer their time and their efforts um, across the country, reaching out to women um, in you know, crisis pregnancy, someone who doesn't necessarily see how she has the means or is searching for that help. Um, you know, pregnancy resource centers have been around for decades and, and reach more and more women each year with the message of hope that they can um, they can achieve that their pregnancy is not a barrier to their success. That both the woman and the baby are loved. Um, so I think that, you know, the, we've continued to see the growth and the success of pregnancy care centers. Um, and, and it's a really positive, encouraging part of the pro-life movement. Anna, why do you think the myth has arisen that women need access to abortion in order to lead flourishing lives? Well, I think, I mean, uh, I wish I knew the full answer to that. Um, but I think there, you know, in part, it comes from the Supreme Court decisions. Um, you know, in, in Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, kind of one of the bases of that was the idea that women need abortion. Um, and then Planned Parenthood versus Casey sort of cements that idea when you know the court had the opportunity to revisit Roe versus Wade. Um, you had a plurality of the court, kind of recognizing that you know Roe as a, a legal case is is a loser. It's it's not really based in um, sound legal principles, you know, 
trying to find this imagined right in the penumbras and emanations of the Constitution. Um, you know, the merits of, of the Roe case, the court realizes, you know, 20 years later, it, they're bunk. Um, so the court at that point, though, sort of upholds what it calls the essential holding of Roe um, because women, the court says, have relied on abortion um, as, you know, to build their, their social and economic lives. Um, so part of maybe the mindset of women need abortion, you know, is that coming from from that court decision saying, you know, reinforcing this idea that women have needed it. But I think, again, too, when you look at the numbers of women that have had abortions, um, many of them may have been, you know, sold that myth and hold on to it as a way to justify um, the abortion that they had. Um, so I think for, you know, many women, you know, there are 55 million abortions since Roe versus Wade. Um, you know, that's a lot of lives lost, but that's also a lot of women who have, you know, at one point were sold that myth and, and many of them still hang on to that um, as a justification. Well, Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all of our questions. It's been great to talk to you, and we appreciate all the work that you are doing. Well, we'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests. We really appreciate their time and expertise in helping us to navigate a very controversial but important topic. Definitely. There are a lot of things that we as a society can do to help women who are faced with this choice of an abortion. And we could dedicate an entire podcast to talking about those things, and maybe someday we will. But we're not going to take that time today. Instead, we're just going to talk to you about one way that we can help women, and that is adoption. And Sally and I are particularly passionate about this because for a long time now, we've wanted to adopt a child. We've not been able to, so in part we wanted to share that because if you are out there listening to this and you know of a family or a mother who's looking for adoptive parents, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would very much appreciate it. Yes, and speaking of getting in touch with us, as I said in the beginning of the show, we really do want to hear from you. Whether you agree with us or not, we want to hear your feedback about this show. You can contact us through our email address, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. You, you can, can tweet at us. At vernacularpod. Or new method, you can call us. We now have a phone Ooh. number at which you can leave voicemails. That number is 719-357-9221. Once again, that number is 719-357-9221. Don't worry, we won't pick up. We won't, but you, you can will. Just leave a message. You can leave a voicemail, and hopefully we'll be able to use that on our podcast. So we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for sticking with us through this whole podcast. We appreciate your listenership. We certainly do. All right, until next time, for Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. I'm by your side